Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll discuss the cross-examination of Gage Grosskreutz, the only witness who survived being shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, as well as the testimonies of Kriston Harris and two Kenosha police officers. Our discussion of this week's witnesses is coming up right after the break. to worst. This was such a missed opportunity, the the entire testimony of Gage Grosskreutz. He should have been a star prosecution witness. He has all the ingredients of a star prosecution witness. He's smart and thoughtful, and he's very considered in all of his responses. He was so poorly prepared, though, for the cross-examination. It kind of boggles the mind. This is the kind of prosecution witness that ought to be called either first in the state's case or last. This is their strength. This is a guy who survived a shooting, who could have easily, it was a matter of luck and inches, be dead. And yet the prosecution did not prepare him to anticipate a perfectly predictable cross-examination. It was astonishing to me that the defense was able to get out not just once, more than once, that his gun, his Glock, was pointed at Rittenhouse. And the prosecutor, we'll get to the redirect, but oh my goodness, that that should have been prepped in advance. He should have been put through a series of mock cross-examinations, not to mention mock direct examinations, which didn't feel like they happened either, so that that crucial moment on cross, which you can only imagine the defense is going to ride off to the sunset with the gun pointed at Rittenhouse in their closing argument. And it just wasn't true. His hands were in the air. That gun might have been pointed in the general direction of Rittenhouse, but the guy has his hands up. 
Yeah, I mean, in fairness, the gun was pointed at least at one point towards Rittenhouse's head. It wasn't directly at his face, but it was within a few feet, at least, of his face. Fair enough. And of course, you know, usually I'm rooting for the defense, and the defense did a very nice job of emphasizing that point. And yes, it was pointed in that direction, but wouldn't the prosecution know that the cross-examination was going to focus on emphasize, develop that more than anything else, that's their self-defense ticket. And so he just needed to be prepared that these things also are momentary. Here's the thing about a video. You know, you can make it look like it's taking forever, but in Gage Grosskreutz's brain, that really wasn't his experience, but he had really hard time explaining where the gun was, his knowledge of the gun. He did a slightly better job in talking about what his intentions were on direct, but seemed to drop that entirely on cross. And he just was really easy to cross-examine. He didn't resist. There were like three times he seemed to resist the cross-examination question, but not, you know, the heart of the cross-examination. Let's break that down a bit. First, Sharafasi was getting some resistance when he asked Grosskreutz whether he was participating in the chase of Rittenhouse. And Sharafasi seemed to sense that that was getting him nowhere. So he tried honey rather than a stick. And he pivoted to acknowledging that Grosskreutz may have been running in the direction of Rittenhouse because he was concerned for Rittenhouse's safety. And that seemed to trap Grosskreutz into participating in Sharafasi's narrative when it got to the encounter with Rittenhouse himself. Yeah. I mean, Sharafasi was a little bit greedy in that part of the cross. I think he could have picked a lower common denominator approach because the defense can live with Rittenhouse running and Grosskreutz running behind him. They don't have to get Grosskreutz agreeing to the word chase. There's enough there just in the way in which the running occurred to argue in closing argument that, come on, Rittenhouse perceived himself that he was being chased. That's what they need. They need Rittenhouse's reasonable belief of danger. And so it didn't really matter, you know, why Gage Grosskreutz was running behind him, whether he was chasing or pursuing him or running after him out of concern or running because everybody was running and there's a kind of instinctive thing when everybody's running. None of that mattered. So yeah, he resisted a bit because that's where he was at his best when he was trying to explain his intention, Grosskreutz that he was not an aggressor, that he was not being aggressive toward anyone. Although I'm not sure that Grosskreutz did himself any favors with his explanation of his intentions for leaving out the fact that he had his handgun in his hand as he approached Rittenhouse from all of his initial police statements. Yes, but here again, that is a knowable fact in the case. It's a knowable piece of evidence. And The prosecution should have prepared him for that, should have prepared the background more. Don't wait till redirect to say, you know, you've been up all day and night when you talk to the police. You were still kind of in the thick of the trauma. Something unspeakable had happened to you or the statements that he gave, you know, after his hospital stay. There should be no delay in the explanation of where he was coming from. You have to do that up front because there's an explanation. Then it feels less like lying and more like, yeah, you know, my brain was sort of a muddle. And no, I didn't really mean to leave that out. Or yes, I did mean to leave that out. I was afraid at that point that the police were focusing on me for some reason when I was a victim, not a perpetrator. 
But there's a way you can explain why a person might leave that out. But the prosecution needed to take charge of that, take the sting out of it. I mean, a couple of things needed more development on direct examination, and it would have defused the cross and kind of taken the bite out of it. First and foremost, you know, there's a fair amount of video being used in the case, something the prosecution didn't do in openings, but which both the defense and prosecution are using in their examination of witnesses. Why not use, you know, with pictures, with video, and let it be up there for a while, a picture of a Glock of a handgun and a picture of an AR-15, an assault rifle. And let those two things be there on the screen so the jury can see they're very, very different firearms. And, you know, it's kind of handy for the prosecution, don't you think, that an AR-15 is called an assault rifle? I mean, the name is right there in there. That just needs to have been focused on more. And I think you can do that really well with pictures. The other thing about a handgun is, depending upon how large Gage Grosskreutz is, I mean, most of it is kind of in his hand. It's a very different thing. Also, in terms of how much Rittenhouse was seeing of you know, this handgun. I think he should have developed much more the injury. I understand that the prosecution tried to get him to use words to describe what happened. The prosecutor, I think, used the word obliterated and Gage Grosskreutz used the word vaporized. I want more. What do you mean by that? I want more lingering on that. And I wanted more demonstration. When you say your hands were up, can you demonstrate that? And how powerful would that be for him to leave his hands up, but he can't quite get his right to stay in that position and have him be in that posture, which is a posture of surrender. There were just moments missed in the examination. And I think in doing that, you do take away some of the power of the cross-examination. He's right-handed, isn't he? Isn't that his dominant hand? And he can't be a medic anymore. If the judge had let him, even though it sort of goes more to sentencing, if the case ever reaches that stage, than guilt, I think the judge would have given some leeway to describe the extent of the injuries and how he's suffering from them now and what he can and can't do. And to lose the use of a dominant hand is actually kind of profound, having to teach yourself how to use your left hand. I mean, this was the human being who looked death in the face and managed to survive. I was so frustrated with them not making good use of him. And it just takes a bunch of preparation, hours of preparation. But this is the heart of the prosecution's case. This is the person who lived to tell You know, was he perfect? No, but no witness is ever perfect. And I think this is something that the listeners need to understand. The prosecution never feels that they have a perfect witness. There are always flaws or blemishes, inconsistencies. That's just the nature of criminal trial practice. But you deal with those by having eyes wide open about the problem areas and surfacing them on direct in a way that kind of explains them best. I've never heard of so much cross, recross, direct, redirect. Traditionally, conventionally, there's direct examination, cross-examination, redirect, period. End of story. With gross price, there was literally a re-redirect. Yeah, there were three rounds on some witnesses. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. (laughs) 
In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I continue our dissection of the prosecution's strategy, or lack thereof, in their handling of this week's witnesses. What about Sharafasi's questions about the Facebook post that Grosskreutz's roommate put up stating that Grosskreutz told him that his only regret was not killing the kid and hesitating to pull the gun before emptying the entire mag into him? All right. So that is a fact that the prosecution knew in advance, right? They have the resources, the investigative capacity to find that out. They need to deal with it. They didn't deal with it at all, or at least ineffectively. I had a couple of different thoughts about that. Let's take it at its very worst. He denied having made that statement, and I don't think that went over very well. I'm just imagining that the jury probably didn't believe that denial. You know, you could either deny it somewhat in context, and say, you know, and prepare them. What was he thinking? I mean, he almost lost his life. You know, might he have expressed some anger? Yes, of course, who wouldn't? Let's take the worst case scenario. Could that witness be a viable complaining witness and have had those feelings and wished he had killed the kid after what happened to him and after him killing two other guys? I think you could live with that. I think he could say, yes, that's absolutely what I said. It doesn't mean that's what I meant to do in the moment. But afterwards, God, yes, I'd like to have my arm back, please. And now this guy is some kind of countercultural hero. Are you kidding me? Two guys are dead. My life is forever altered. Yes, I wish he was not alive and I was back to being a fully active and able human being. I think you could live with that. That speaks to your point about the prosecution having a consistent theory of the case and giving Grosskreutz a consistent point of view in his testimony. For example, when he's approaching, he doesn't have to say, I would never kill someone. That defies credulity for a guy with a gun in his hand. What he should have said and what the story should have been on direct, if I take your points here correctly, is that he should have said, I was approaching the defendant with my hands in the air. The guy trained his gun on me. He re-racked. He was going to shoot me. And in the very last moment before he vaporized my arm, I began to train my gun on him. But by then it was too late. Perfect. Or have him explain, look, I'm a gun guy in some ways. I believe in the right to bear arms. For self-defense in particular, you know, my job sometimes takes me into dangerous areas. I'm sometimes in a volatile situation. I'm not eager to use it, but yes, I do. I carry it. It's a handgun. It's a small weapon, but I feel like it's necessary. And yes, it wasn't until the very last minute when I thought I was going to die that I finally somehow instinctively maybe managed to grab my own gun and point it in the direction. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The gun is in the air above his head. That's a posture of surrender. I mean, it's not, he hasn't hidden the gun. It's not like a Western movie where he's going to quickly reach down his ankle and, you know, the gun is visible. But as you say, in order for that to have any chance of being a compelling narrative with the jury, it has to come out on direct testimony and be the story. But again, the prosecution didn't have a consistent theory of the case and didn't prep their witness with a consistent statement. Yes. And the consistent theory, consistent storytelling by a complaining witness, by the only surviving complaining witness, would be one in with the central storyline is this guy's a victim. And the defense managed to turn that around in the cross-examination and make their guy the victim. That's just the reality of what happened. And I think the prosecution cluttered up 
his testimony. They didn't emphasize and develop the stuff they needed to about what was in Grossbreitz's mind, about who he was as a person, about why he's depicted the way he's depicted in video and what was going on in his mind at every moment. Freeze frame the surrender posture, compare the couple of guns. Don't go into that whole thing about the militia. Right, the Boogaloo Boys. Yeah, Binger begins his redirect. And now this is redirect where he's got a witness who's just been vaporized by the defense. And he starts by talking about Boogaloo Boys. Yes. I mean, that was really stunning. I don't think the jury knows or gives a damn about the Boogaloo Boys or whether he's a member of a militia, whether he's wearing similar clothing or carrying a similar weapon. This is how the prosecutor's narrative has become kind of cluttered up with ideology. It doesn't matter, you know, that there are protesters and counter-protesters. It doesn't matter that there are right-wing counter-protesters and leftists. That doesn't matter. That shouldn't matter to the prosecution's case. They've got a victim here. Tell that story. Don't tell the other story. Here's what's a really awesome, interesting visual is when Kyle Rittenhouse approaches the police, he's in a posture of surrender. Frankly, it sounds a whole lot like the posture of surrender that Gage Grossfreitz was in. Very different reactions, though. Cops don't blow Rittenhouse away. Rittenhouse tries to blow Grossfreitz away. I mean, if, if surrender is a thing, if there's a you know an obvious meaning to a person with their hands up. On direct examination, the direction of the gun needed to have been explained. And step by step, chronologically, and here's the thing that the prosecution has, that they almost always have. They have a narrative that goes in chronological order. So they just need to tell it, but with some detail and stopping the witness at every moment and saying, what were you thinking then? What were you thinking then? What did you think was going to happen then? And the witness can say, look, this was happening so fast and so furious and I couldn't believe it was happening, but that's compelling. Even that bewilderment is compelling. Right. And another aspect of the prosecution failure to properly prepare Grosskreutz as a witness was his constant inclination to concede to the defense narrative. And that was no nowhere more evident than on recross or re-recross when he conceded what he did leading up to the shooting could be considered a threat. I was just blown away that he did that. And a properly prepared witness would never do that. Ever. That was really stunning and embarrassing for the prosecution. I mean, this cross was heaven for the defense. It's just a dream, a fantasy that every question you ask on cross pretty much, or at least the important questions, he's getting the witness to concede. The witness just says, yes, 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 or that's correct, or that's fair. No, you know, also there was a real paucity of objecting by the prosecution on cross. I mean, basically the defense got Grace to characterize what was in Rittenhouse's mind about feeling threatened. No, you can't. This is not competent to testify to somebody else's thought process. But the prosecution was oddly silent during the cross. And yes, I, I don't know why. I began to think about Gage Grosskreutz. Gee, is he secretly sympathetic to the guy who nearly took his entire armor? Why is he agreeing with the characterization of the defense? So that's kind of where it's at, I think, with your astute observation about the witness's inclination to agree. It was on areas that he did not need to. It was on questions 
characterizing or describing subjective states of being. He has to agree to certain facts, but he could also explain them a bit more than he was doing. And that should happen in preparation. One of the first things that you tell a witness, now, of course, I'm a defense lawyer, so my experience is from the defense side, but, you know, you basically are supposed to take a witness to trial school. You school them on the way the courtroom looks and who to direct your attention to when you're testifying and how to answer questions. You don't give up more than you have to. If you don't understand the question, you say that. You say, I don't understand. Can you ask that again? Could you ask that differently? You think very hard before you agree with a characterization. The point is not to get the examination over with. The point is that the examination be true to your own experience, to your own sense of the truth. And it just didn't feel like this witness had been prepared in that way. You know, he may have to admit, yes. I agree. I see in the video, the gun is pointed in the direction of Kyle Rittenhouse. But here's why it was. And there should be a but. And if the cross-examiner controls the witness and says, that's not what I'm asking you. Yes or no. Is the gun pointed at Rittenhouse? Yes, I suppose it looks that way. I mean, that'd be a better answer than, yes, that's correct. Well, he tried to. And Sharafasi, again, kind of worked his way around to getting him to concede to what he wanted him to concede to, mostly because I think that the witness wasn't properly prepared. Let's move on to Kriston Harris, the rundown live reporter. I don't know. I had only one word for him because I don't know why the prosecution called him. He wasn't terribly helpful. He just kind of came across as a doofus. I actually think he, again, helped the defense much more than he helped the prosecution, beginning with Binger's own ridiculous question that he didn't know the answer to. Binger asked, him, would it be fair to say that it was your impression that the people in the crowd viewed the people around Mr. Rittenhouse as a threat? And Harris said, I wouldn't say that. I can't speak for everyone. I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, so bad. I don't know why they called him. You know, he was out there as a witness just because somebody exists as a witness, just because they were physically present or doing some recording doesn't mean he's your witness. They should have let him alone. Maybe the defense would have called him. I don't know. I think that part of the reason they called him was because they played his video earlier and there were a number of defense objections to that person's opinions being played for the jury without the benefit of them being able to cross-examine him. So I think he boxed himself into calling Harris, but Again, I just want to enumerate a couple of more instances where Harris was much more helpful to Sharafasi and to the defense than he was to Binger and the prosecution. There was a moment where Sharafasi says, okay, so to be fair, Rittenhouse wasn't doing anything aggressively, correct? Kristan Harris, I agree with that. Sharafasi, he wasn't verbally threatening anyone. No, he was offering help, says Harris. Sharafasi says he wasn't using his firearm in a way to scare or intimidate people by pointing it at them. Agreed? Harris, agreed. And then finally, Binger tries to raise that guy that said, fuck around and find out as reflective of the group response escalating the situation. And the judge, I think appropriately, shot that down. He said, the group is not on trial. Mr. Rittenhouse is on trial. And Binger concludes his questioning by just saying, that's fine. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Like a beaten dog. 
exasperating. I don't know why, again, okay, maybe they were boxed into calling that witness, then prepare him, really prepare him. Prepare him to say, no, Rittenhouse wasn't pointing the gun, but there's something terribly threatening about a 17-year-old walking around with an assault rifle. Let's finish up by talking about the two police officers, Widener and Van Wee. I think Widener, the purpose of his testimony was to talk about the shell casings that were found. But again, it didn't look particularly good that he missed two of the shell casings and that they were found by citizens in that lot in subsequent days. And then Van Wee, he never swabbed the barrel of the gun. And while he was the state's witness, I think he did more to help the defense than he did to help the state in any way, because it gave them the opportunity to raise the issue that Anthony Huber is alleged by the defense to have grabbed the barrel of Kyle Rittenhouse's rifle in the moments before Rittenhouse shot him, and yet they never swabbed the barrel of the gun. I think Krauss made a good point in saying that the defense never requested that the barrel of the gun be swabbed, but the damage had already been done. Yeah. I got the feeling that the prosecution felt that they needed to call all of the police officers involved in the investigation for some reason, just because they were law enforcement and they've been involved in the investigation. But you don't have to call every single witness. You should make a thoughtful choice about who to call and why. Now, this is complicated, I think, in this particular era, precisely because of TV shows like CSI and Law and & Order. And, and one of the officers, in fact, described the work that he does as a crime scene investigator as like a CSI guy. Jurors and there have been studies that show this, you know, tend to want more now because they watch those shows. But this case, and a good prosecution closing would cover this, was not about forensic evidence. You don't really need much forensic evidence in a case like this. It's all pretty much on videotape and through witness testimony. So the prosecution didn't need to call those two guys. They were much more defense witnesses, especially the guy doing the DNA swabs. That's the kind of witness, if I was the defense attorney in this case, I would have subpoenaed him as a defense witness um, to ask that one question or to ask a series of questions having to do with swabbing the gun and pointing out that the whole thing wasn't swabbed, which then leaves unanswered in a case where the other team, the prosecution, has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, that's a beautiful reason to doubt, is that we don't know. We maintain as the defense that that gun was grabbed. That's what probably Rittenhouse is going to say. And yet there's no evidence that it wasn't grabbed you know, by the team that bears the burden of proof. But I don't think they needed either one of those witnesses. Yes, there was a suggestion earlier in the case that there was some naughty or incompetent police work. This is not that kind of case. This is not a circumstantial evidence case where the collection of evidence by the police and the testing of evidence by the police and forensic science by law enforcement in general, you know, is at the heart of the case. That's not this case. So I'm not sure why they called those guys. Well, Abby, next week marks the end of our coverage of the prosecution case and we move on to the defense case. So at the end of next week, we'll see the beginning of how the prosecution responded to, as I think you put it, the shit show of a case that the prosecution put on. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see because there's a bunch of decision points now. And honestly, I have to say the defense team should really struggle over whether they need to call Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, I understand that he was called. This is the kind of case where the prosecution has put on such a weak case 
you know, I think this case is winnable without the defendant testifying. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but I'd be surprised if the prosecution didn't make another plea offer at some point. I mean, in the middle of Grosskreutz, I would think they would make an offer of some kind because it's going bad. But anyhow, I'm not sure we know that. And maybe the defense would have turned that down. Who knows? Well, we're going to find out in the coming weeks. Thanks again, Abby, for joining us and look forward to talking to you next week. Okay, me too. Thanks, Kerry. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we conclude our examination of the state's case and as we begin our coverage of testimonies offered by the defense witnesses. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.